If you were to look at the person next to you, thank you, brother, um, and never has music and the message blended so well as today. You're a genius. Thank you so much. And uh, worship team, you're awesome. Uh, I want you to look, you know, if you looked at the person next to you and thought, if I could change one, per- one thing about that person, what would it be? Go ahead. No. Okay, you got one? I got, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we, no, don't do that. Isn't that funny, though, that I'm good at that? I know exactly what needs to be changed about everybody around me, and almost everybody needs something changed. <laughs> Isn't that something? Oh, 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 some of you wives are still going. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. You're like, wait, wait, I'm not done. I'm not done. You know, a thing we do more often even than that is we, I think we think a lot about the things about ourselves that we would change. Stuff we would make better, right? I mean, everybody's got this, this list, and we never stop longing to be better people, do we? And at different moments, we wish, you know, oh, I wish I could, yesterday I'm on the golf course thinking, why didn't I do this sooner in life? Why am I so bad? I wish I could be better at this. I wish I could do that in, in, a, in a different way. There's always some aspect about our behavior or about our personality, uh, our looks, that we wish we could change. And if I were to ask the question in a different way, what about you would you change? I've got a feeling almost everybody in this room would go, I know what that is. I would change, and you fill in the blank. Because this isn't the first moment you've thought about that, right? You may have been thinking about that since you were a little girl, since you were a teenage guy. We're going to make a switch here? Okay. Excuse us, we're going to try this. You put it on my belt. Look for me. <laughs> All right, is this working? Okay, we're back in action here. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Um, you folks are always patient with us, and we we appreciate that. I start t- in the old days. You would unbutton your shirt and run this under, and I started doing that. And I thought, no, let's just keep this like a, a PG and not a comedy show. Um, I spent some time looking at all the the things in my library and the things that are available uh, for you to kind of figure out what how to do that, how to change yourself and how to make yourself better. Uh, and, and it is amazing. I mean, we don't have borders anymore. We still have Barnes & Noble, and there's all kind of bookstores around. But have you ever noticed how huge the self-improvement section is in, in a typical bookstore? Or if you were to Google that, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So many of the seminars that, that you attend and that you have been to uh, have to do with, I'm going to make myself better. One of the titles that I saw is kind of intriguing was Personal Development for Dummies. <laughs> if you're a dummy, I don't know if you've got a chance. Uh, another, Reinventing Yourself. I, I've thought about that. Uh, becoming a Life Change Artist. And this one, this is my favorite. Change or die. That's a little scary. Um, and some of these, if you've got a lot of time um, and you really want to in, invest in this, here's one that said, uh, building a better you 
No, building the best you, a two-year discovery journal. <laughs> I don't have two years, okay? I'm at that place. You got two years. I don't have two years, so I think I'm going to get this one. This is a little thinner volume. It's how to change almost anything in 21 days. Yeah, that, I can do 21 days. <laughs> anything. That sounds kind of interesting to me because, you know, you can improve your memory, you can get better organized, you can become more assertive or less assertive, you can stop procrastinating, you can overcome your anger, you can stop being late, you can uh, make people like you. Uh, there's just all these things about yourself. You think, yeah, I would kind of like to, to change those things. But can that happen? Have you ever been frustrated with that? I mean, how many of you have been on more than one diet? You don't have to raise your hand. You know? And you think, well, I did, yeah, I went on one back in 77, and that seemed to kind of do it. I'm, I've been pretty thin ever since. No, we, we keep returning. To, can we change? Is it really possible? Or is it just this promise that publishers and marketers use to keep us interested? Can an introvert become the life of the party? Can an extrovert learn to dial it back just a little bit? One psychologist I read has his doubts, and he said this, you, you can train a poodle to bark, but you'll never turn him into a German shepherd. <laughs> I thought, that's true, because I know a lot of poodles trying to make me think they're German shepherds, don't you? Can we change who we are deep down inside? And what's true for people in general, I think this desire to be a better person, I want to be a better me, it takes on a special meaning for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. We not only want to become better people, we've got this goal, I want to become a more Christ-like person. I want to be more like Jesus. I mean, isn't that presumptuous? I mean, isn't that, you just think, wow, well, shoot high. Who's the greatest person who ever lived? That would be Jesus. And who do you want to be like? Jesus. I think these are questions that most of us, probably all of us, have struggled with. No matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been following Christ, if you could change one thing about yourself spiritually, what would it be? And is it even possible? Is it realistic for people like you and people like me? Could we even imagine that we could become like Christ someday? Is that just something held out there? These are questions that we're going to tackle today. We're going to think about these things and as we, we dive deeper into this series and into this letter called 1 John. It's a, it's a little letter in toward the back of your book. And uh, Last week we looked at this doctrinal issue, this test of our faith. Uh, we dove deeper into truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ was fully God, he was fully man, and he's the only way to eternal life. This week we're going to return to this ethical discussion of our faith and discover the fact that we have a deep and strong hope in Jesus. And that's what we've been singing about all morning. That's what we've been thinking about this week. So let's jump into this letter. And in this little letter, for the first time, John introduces these two new ideas in this section. And I've been looking forward to this all week because I love what he unfolds for us. It's not new to John. 
He's already talked about it in his other letter, which was a gospel um, you know, that, that you can read on your, your own time. He's written about this, so it's not new to him, but it's new in, in this section. And the first new idea that he introduces is the second coming of Jesus. Let's look at 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 28. John says, so now, and remember how affectionately and how intimately he writes? It's almost embarrassing. You know, you almost, it's like when your mom kissed you at school in front of everybody and you say, Mom! John writes and says, so now, little children, my little children. Remember, he's the oldest guy in the room. He's the last man standing, the only one who actually saw Jesus. He knew Jesus. So it says, so now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. John introduces this idea in one verse, and he uses these two distinct New Testament words to describe this second coming of Christ. The first word is appearing, so that when he appears, and for whatever reason, that got my attention, and it just kind of zeroed in, I just kind of focused on that. It's like it jumped off the page. It's the same word that he used all the way back in chapter 1 when he spoke about Christ's first coming. Here's what he said. He wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. John's always reminding his readers, I knew this guy. I knew this guy. We proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared. It, it appeared. And this particular word describes this, this process, this thing that happens when invisible becomes visible, when what is hidden is revealed. For thousands of years, all throughout the Old Testament, God had been with his people, but no one had ever seen him. You know, he was always mysterious and always hidden. You know, he was, there was a, he was behind a pillar of fire. There was a, a smoke on a mountain. There's a burning bush, and, you know, he, he's always there. But for the first time, through Jesus of Nazareth, the invisible God becomes visible. He steps onto the stage, and we see him for the first time. He could be seen and heard and touched. But then, just when his followers were kind of getting used to, to having him around, he disappeared. He returned to heaven. And while he was still with them in his spirit, he was now he's invisible again. And I've known him for over three decades, but I've never actually seen him. Someday, John says, he will appear. What is invisible, he will become visible again. He will be revealed. And the Bible says that we will see him just as he is. The second word that John uses is the word coming. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed at his coming. And this word is used to describe, it's a, it's a beautiful word picture in, in that day. Everybody would have gotten it. You know, when his readers uh, came to this line, they would go, oh, we know exactly what he's talking about. Because it was language used for when a king came to visit one of his territories. 
I mean, it was a huge land. And people couldn't travel as easily as they do now. And so he, he wanted to, uh, to visit his subjects, and they would want to welcome him and to honor him. But remember, in this day, there's no Fox News. You know, there's nobody. We're here live in Bethlehem, and it looks like the king is he's coming right now. And back to you. And, you know, the, you didn't have that play-by-play -play and everybody going with him to every city. You didn't have pictures on, on Twitter, you know, oh, look, oh, yeah, the king came to our neighborhood. How awesome is that? You, you, didn't, you couldn't post it on Facebook. You couldn't watch a YouTube video. You know, look, here's, the, here's this king's speech when he was, he was in town yesterday. The only thing you did was just, you know, you had these people who would go out ahead, and, and they would just yell, the king is coming. The king is coming. And he would get there, and the word would begin to spread. People would leave the city, and they would go out to the edge of town. They would go out, and they would watch for him. And when somebody with the sharpest eyes finally saw him, they would go, there he is! There he is! Strike up the band! Everybody get ready! It's the king! He's coming! He's coming! That's him! So that's him. I always thought he would be taller. You know, and, and, and sometimes they would just join his entourage as he would travel through and they would see him, then they would fall in with this great group of people and, and go with him into the city. And I thought what a beautiful picture that was. You know, and it raises all these possibilities and these thoughts of what Paul describes happens with the church when he says we will be caught up in the air to meet with the Lord this rapture event and this describing of the church meeting Christ and that we accompany him in this triumphant return to earth. It's just beautiful language, beautiful picture. In any event, in this letter, John wants his readers to have no doubt that the Jesus who was brutalized and humiliated and murdered on the cross, this Jesus who vanished from the earth amidst all this speculation and all this rumor and all this drama and this tragedy, that Jesus would one day return in power and glory for all the world to see. His readers needed to know that. They needed hope. Remember, these people are two or three generations away. They're removed from Jesus. And we began this series talking about how many of you are first-generation Christians, how many of you are second, how many of you are third. And some of us go back to families who have no spiritual roots, and we're the beginning of things. For many of you, your father and mother and your grandparents, and beyond that, they already were lovers of Jesus. And so you can kind of understand when those moments come and you think, wait, you know, I've been believing this my whole life, and I'm having this crisis moment. Is this true? Is he really the guy? I mean, I've just sort of always accepted that Jesus was real. And I think we come to these moments as we begin to think abstractly about life and uh, particularly sometimes the end of life and the end of things, and we wonder, Jesus, are you real? I've never seen you. Are you the one? And what John is doing all throughout this letter, he's saying, I saw him. And you're on the right track. He's the one. He's the one. It had been 50-something years since Jesus of Nazareth had walked the earth, and they had never actually seen him. And they needed to know. we got to know. we got to know that one day he would come again and that he would be able to be seen and heard and experienced. You know what I think? I think we need to know that too because we're 50 generations 
We're 2,000 years removed from Jesus of Nazareth. And I talk to people all the time and say, you know, Dan, I, I don't want to disrespect you, but it's just a little hard to believe sometimes that God actually walked the earth in the person of his son. And it's harder still to believe that he's going to come back again one day. I remember telling a guy I used to work with, you know, Jesus is coming back. And he said, son, he's like twice my age. He said, son, I've been hearing that my whole life. And I don't see, I don't think he, my, my granddaddy believed that. And he just, he had become so cynical because he had heard that message. And he just, at some place in his life, he stopped believing it. What about us? You know, I mean, he's going to be heard. He's going to be seen. It's going to happen. Now, when you hear that and you embrace that, what happens to you emotionally? I mean, does that bring hope? You think, yes, that, that, I just, oh, God, I'm so weary. I, that would be really nice if it were today. You have days like that where you think, Jesus, if you're really coming back, now, before this test, would be a good moment. Before I pull into the driveway, I saw that Kathy sent me this thing about this guy. He's an older guy, and he was... He got pulled over uh, driving home, and it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and the officer said, where are you going? And he said, I'm headed to a lecture. He goes, oh, no kidding, a lecture at 2 a.m. He goes, yes, he goes, what's the lecture about? He said, the destructive effects of alcohol and staying out too late on a person's life. He goes, really? He goes, who's giving this lecture? He goes, my wife. <laughs> um, we need to know, you know... Um, what does it make you feel when you think about that? What strikes me about John's description of the second coming is how positive he is about it, how inspiring it is. I mean, he wants us to look forward to that day. He says, let's be confident. Let's be unashamed. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says, um, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. I underline that little word, purify. I thought... That's an unusual verb uh, for you to pick, John. And, and he, he describes this hope. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a real different kind of thing that was happening with me when I first started attending church and I first started coming around and hearing about the second coming. And it was all the vote. I mean, it was all in style to talk about second coming. When uh, That moment of history, and I'm going to date myself, when I came to Christ, that was all the rage. Everybody's talking about Jesus is coming back. And, I mean, it was the, like a constant diet of that. And as I remember it, this is my impression, it scared the life out of me. I was so afraid. I thought, what's going to happen? And uh, I didn't feel real hopeful. There were all these movies, and everything was about mostly the idea of getting left behind, that that was the part. You know, have you done anything? One day we had this huge event at this place where I worked. It was a loud noise. Lightning struck a transformer, all the electricity I mean, it just, it just everything blew up, and then it all went quiet, and, and I was in one end of this place, and everybody else was in the other, and I thought, ah, it's happened. I'm left behind, you know, and I just thought, oh, Lord, what did I miss? What did I miss? You know, and I'm thinking through everything, and I just, I mean, this was a fearful time in my life. I remember I started going to church, and my pastor preached this series on the book of the Revelation, Oh my goodness, I had to make myself go to church every Sunday. I thought, oh no, oh no. You know, it was just so, he put up these scary, you remember overhead projectors? He used, oh, it was a high-tech tool. He would put the scariest looking charts. He would flash them up there and it would show things like tribulation, Armageddon, 
second death. I mean, I was, every Sunday I would, come, I would walk out of there thinking, <gasps> one Wednesday night they showed this movie, and this is really going to date myself. I don't know, how many of you have seen this? Thief in the Night. All right, all you old guys. There's this scene. Do you remember the scene where the guy wakes up, he's in bed, and he looks over, and it's just his wife's pajamas, and they're empty, and he's like, ah! you know, she's gone, it happened, you know. And I was, I'd go home, and every day I'd get up, and I'd, I'd go look in everybody's room. Okay, everybody's, no empty pajamas. I guess we made it through another night. I was just scared. And they would just mess up, even the fun events. I'm just now coming to church, and one of the things, it's kind of like your, your hayride and dance things. It's just, you know, we would do hayrides, okay? And it's, it's a great way for adolescents to flirt because you get to sit in the hay and it's just, you know, that's what it's all about, right? Who are you kidding? And we would go on these hayrides. This guy had this farm outside of town and we'd go. But the youth pastor so messed it up, I'll never forget. We're all snuggled in and everybody's kind of with somebody, you know, and they've divided off into couples. We're all sitting in the hay, uh, riding around. And he gets up in the front and he sits on the front of the back of this tractor thing and he starts playing an acoustic guitar. And here are the words that he said to the, one of the most popular songs of that era. <laughs> I can't do this. Uh, I promise this is true. This is not even funny. It's awful. It just, in this moment, it just kind of, children died, the days do cr grew cold, a piece of bread would buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. I'm sorry, this is not even funny. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears, one is left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come. You've been left behind. Seeing that around a bonfire. <laughs> Try to be flirty in a, the back of a hay wagon with that pounding in your head. I mean, I was just, I, he was well-intentioned, I'm sure, but I just thought, okay, okay. And then he would always, you know, we'd take these bus trips, and you go on these things, and he would say, if Jesus were to come back right now, or whatever you're doing, if he were to come back and catch you doing that right now, and I go, um, don't come back yet. Give me five minutes. You know, that was kind of the, the one speaker that we had actually here at Calvary. He was giving a talk on this, and while he was talking, some of you remember this, he would tap the pulpit in time. One day, and then time will stop. And we're all sitting there going, <laughs> and he was so good. I mean, it was so dramatic, and, and he just really, I just thought, time just stopped, and here I, I'm, I'm left behind again. I mean, and, and I'm not mocking that. I think it's I mean, just boom. It's just this just truth that it's, it's it just kind of, that's how it came across to me. It, the second coming was always this thing that I was a little scared of. And I think some of it is because there's this place in our head where we wonder, am I ready to meet Jesus? Am I ready to see him? And what is supposed to be inspiring, what is supposed to be this good thing, has caused more dread and fear in people. How do you think about that? Does it fill you with this anticipation or just with anxiety? Are you ready to meet Christ? John says, I want you to look forward to this day. Dear children, he says, my little children, 
It's going to be a great day of joy and anticipation. It's going to be a good day. In the next few verses, he tells us why. In, in chapter 2, verse 29, uh, he, says, uh, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know this well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. With this verse, John introduces this second new idea in this letter, and that's this second birth. Up until now, he has described relationship with God in terms of fellowship and in terms of belief. And now he uses language of birth and of family. And once again, this isn't really a new idea for John. He's, he's talked like that before, but it, and it's central to his gospel. Uh, in fact, if you remember one of his conversations with Jesus and Nicodemus in, in John 3, Jesus just looks at this man. This guy's brilliant. I mean, this is a very intelligent guy uh, in the community. And Jesus locks eyes with him and he says, I'll tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And Nick says, what? I don't get that. You mean you, uh, we have to, like, is this some kind of a metaphysical thing? We become a baby and we have to go through that whole thing? He says, no, 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 no. That's not what it's about. And he goes on to explain just as every person must be born physically to enter into a human family, he says every person must be born spiritually to enter into God's family. Oh, okay, I get that. And the first birth results in earthly life. The second birth results in eternal life. How exactly, then, does this second birth happen? John explains it in chapter 1 of his gospel. He says... Yet to all who received him, this is in, in John 1.12, he says, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, I love this, to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but of born of God. And contrary to popular opinion, we're not all children of God. I know if I get any response and there's anything more controversial uh, that I would say today, I don't think there's anything more than, than that. A lot of people I talk to think that we're automatically children of God, that simply because we're born human beings, that, ma that makes us that. We, we become children of God when we're, and this is the whole thing that sets us apart. Jesus says, no, 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 it's not just that. It's you're born again, and, and, it, and it starts something different. It's not just because you're a human. We become children of God. When we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, we ask him to save us. He makes us then sons and daughters. We are, as Paul would say, adopted into his family. So this idea of a second birth, it's not new for John, but he reminds his readers of it all throughout his letter. And, he, and he, it's almost like he's struck afresh by the wonder of it. In fact, there's an exclamation point at this place in the passage, and you don't see that a lot in Scripture. You know, you don't see somebody just writing and go, whoo, boom, you know, just, they, he kind of brings it up a notch. And every once in a while, sometimes, you know, I'll be in my, my study or my office at home, and I'm working on a message, and I'll, I'll stumble across a truth or a word or an idea that's so fresh and so wonderful and, and it's so surprising. I, I put my pen down or I stop typing, and there's times I've just cried, and I've just thought about, God, I just want to take this moment and, and, and just give you praise. Me. This kid from Fraser, this guy from North Memphis, you would make, let me be one of your children? 
Now look at what's happened to John. Right here in the middle of this letter, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, How great, how awesome, how, how beautiful and amazing it is that the love of the Father, in the, the version I've chosen to read, it says he lavished. He was extravagant. He said, I'm just going to lavish this love on you to the point that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. It's like John can hardly believe it. He says, this is too good to be true, but it is. And that's what we are. We are children of God. And we have no reason to fear. He says, if you're my child you, and I'm coming back, you don't have any reason. You can look forward to that. There's several families in, in our church who are military families. And, uh, you know, you remember that thing. Some of you who were raised as kids. And, you know, back in the day, we could go all the way to the gate in the airport and now, especially in Knoxville, you've got that, you know, that walkway with the, the water and the rocks. And there's times I've gone on trips or I've seen other people and I've gone to meet them. And you wait for their return. And you watch for them to come through the doors. And, you know, you think, there they are. He's coming. There he is. There he is. And you're welcome. You're saying, oh, man, I dread that. I dread when they come walking through those doors. You know, maybe some of you feel that way some about some people. But typically when you go to meet somebody, you're excited about that. And you can just see the kids, you know, as soon as they see their father and they rush to him and they jump up in his arms and he hugs them and maybe there's tears and they thought, we, we didn't know when you would ever get back. They want to see him just as he is, his smiling face and those loving eyes and, and all. In the same way, we are children of God. And we look forward to seeing Jesus face to face. We look forward to seeing his return. We don't have to worry about those of us in Christ you're not going to be left behind. We don't have to run for cover. We don't have to dread that. We just, we welcome him. We wait for him because we will behold him. Notice that I said, if you're a child of God, that's a big if. And I wouldn't be honest. I, 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 I wouldn't be right if I didn't tell you that if you've never been born again, this, this second birth, this born of God, then yeah, the second coming is a pretty scary proposition. Your first step toward becoming a better person, the person that you long to be, the person you know you want to be inside, is so simple. It's just inviting Christ to be your Savior, to invite Jesus to come into your life. And as John's writing, an even more wonderful thought comes to his mind. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, when, when Christ returns, we'll not only see him, Check this out. He says, we will be like him. Look at verse 2. Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. It's not been revealed. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him just as he is. You see, when you're someone's child, you don't just belong to them. You resemble them. You're, you're like them. You can't help it. You carry their DNA. I mean, your, your father's blood runs through your veins. You're, you're part of them. It's who you are. Look at back at, at, at chapter 2, verse 29. He says, you know that he is righteous, and you know this well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. John uses this language of begetting, of, of parents imparting life to a child. Not just life, but likeness. There's this family resemblance. And if we've been born of God, we have this righteous gene in us now. We've inherited this propensity. We've this capacity for doing good. 
for, doing, for choosing the right thing. And unfortunately, we also still have this old habit with us too. You know, this habit of sin, the ones we inherited from our natural parents, from Adam and from Eve. And we struggle now sometimes to live by this new nature rather than that old pattern that was set up. The fact remains that now we're God's children. We have his life. We have his nature. We have this, this work within us. So becoming like Jesus, I want you to get this. It's not just this possibility, something that maybe could happen. It's a promise. Look at verse 2 again. He says, look what a great love the Father has given us, that we should be called his children, and we are. And then he says this, dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him. Paul said, it's like we look through a glass darkly. It's like, you know, the car that pulls up next to you and they've got their windows all tinted out and you're trying to look in. And, you know, somebody the other day said, I was waving at you. And I said, when? They go, I pulled up next to you. And I said, what kind of car do you have? And, they, and they've got these really dark tinted windows. I said, dude, I can't see you in there. I can't, you're invisible. You're like a drug dealer or something. I, we don't know if you're waving or what you're doing. But someday, the Bible says, he'll roll down the window. Someday, we're going to see him face to face. And that literally means nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball. We're going to see Jesus. It won't be, Kathy and I are going to hear Allison Krauss tonight. Uh, Allison used to have a crush on me for a long time. I don't know. And, uh, and so we've gotten past that. But we're going to go see her. And we're going to be one of the people in, in there listening. But we will see her at a distance. You know, we're not going to go up close. We're not going to. When Jesus comes, I think sometimes we think it's going to be like Nayland Stadium, and we're going to be up there going, hey, look, hey, there's Jesus. Check it out. You want to see him? Oh, that is so great. You know, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be you and Jesus. You and Jesus. Verse 3 says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he's pure. There's a lot of hope packed in that. Notice what John's saying here. He says, the hope of Christ's coming doesn't just encourage us. Hang in there. You know, good luck. See you on the other side. No, it's actually, it changes us. It's shaping us into who we will be. Prince Harry of Great Britain uh, and his older brother William are the sons of Prince Charles and, and Lady Diana, and they're the grandsons of Queen Elizabeth. And as such, one day there's a possibility that, that um, you know, he will sit on the throne of Great Britain. You know, and from the day that they were born, that possibility, that destiny has shaped them. And you think about this, because they're royalty, you know, every aspect of their life, their, their friendships, their schooling, their, you know, their hobbies, their, you know, their military service, all of that has been shaped by the possibility he might be king one day. That's why, you know, when Harry uh, was on the front lines in Afghanistan, you know, it got so risky, and they said, we can't leave him there because he might be king. We, he has a destiny to fulfill. We've got to pull him out. You see, when you call someone prince, that carries with it. You're not just describing who they are today. And he's a prince. No, it, it gives hope. It gives this picture of who they will be one day. You get it? He says, you are the children of God. And with that comes this promise, not just of who you are now, but who you will be one day. That's why John says it purifies us. It shapes us. It compels us to live every day of our lives in anticipation of that day 
when we shall be like him, and we shall reign with him. So it's like when the king comes to your village and then he turns and he puts the crown on your head as well. So how does this transformation into Christ-likeness, this purification from sin, how does that happen? I mean, in one sense, it happens right away at salvation, right? I mean, just, I mean, there was such a difference in me. I mean, I, I just my attitude, my, my, the taste, my preferences, all those things begin to shift almost overnight. But in another sense, it's not automatic. You have to act towards it. You've got to lean into that. It's not just a matter of gritting your teeth and I'm going to try hard. You ever have those days, I'm going to be a good Christian today. Today's the day. I'm going to get this right. I'm going to do it well. And you know, by breakfast, you've already blown it and thought, okay, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to be a really good Christian. And it's just like day after day and you can get discouraged. It's because that's not the way it works. It's not just me gearing up for it and trying to do that. It's a matter of me spending time with Christ. That's how it works in a family, right? Kids become like their parents by hanging out with them, around them, spending time with them, and day in and day out, and watching what they do. It just sort of happens. I mean, it's wired into you because of your DNA, but it's by being around them. I was trying to think this way of a way to illustrate that, and I thought about the Manning brothers because that's something that is so dear and near to you, right? Everybody, I mean, several of you probably are named Peyton um, because we're in East Tennessee. and I mean, it's just a beautiful thing that the Manning brothers are born with some really good DNA. I mean, that is not by accident. I mean, they, they learned the game of football, however, and became Hall of Famers, you know, by, by their Hall of Famer dad. They were playing catch in the backyard, and they all played as soon as they were old enough. They watched games together. They hang around the sidelines together until one day what they were born and bred to be became a reality. NFL quarterbacks. The third brother, Cooper, not for a medical condition, he probably would have been in the NFL, either as a quarterback or probably a wide receiver. He played all the way up uh, and had scouts looking at him. He would have followed suit. It's just this family, you know, and you think, well, that's just natural. In the same way, the best way to become like Jesus is to be born again and then to spend time with Christ. Spiritual, get this, spiritual formation isn't a matter of trying harder. I'm going to get this right. I'm going to try harder. It's a matter of getting closer. I hope that just takes a lot of pressure off you. You don't have to grit this out. You don't have to, you don't think, I can do let me repeat that because it's important. Spiritual formation isn't a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of getting closer. It's a matter of relating to Jesus as much as possible, spending time with him in the morning, at the end of the day, talking with him as, as you make your way, you know, through all the stuff that you got to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and you worship him. Uh, every Sunday you hang out with his people. You join him with, in his work in the world, and we do missions. And, you know, all of that begins to do something in you. Because the more we're with him, the more we're like him. You become like Jesus. So what does that mean for us? It means there's hope. It means there's hope. It means it's never too late to change. It's never too late to grow. It means that, that, that day by day, we are becoming the person that we long to be, the person that we were born to be. And one day, we'll be fully conformed to the image 
of God's Son. The Bible says that we will live and that we'll reign with Christ forever. You know, there's a, there's a phrase that you're very familiar with, and, and, it's, and it's something like this, and you'll hear it this afternoon. I think there's like eight NFL games on. There's three more tonight, and there's a couple more tomorrow night. I mean, all of you fantasy folks, you know, you're going to be watching to see kind of what happens. If you've ever been in Nayland Stadium, you've seen this moment. And most people hate this moment. I kind of like it sometimes. Everything will stop, and you'll hear one of the refs say this. Upon further review, the call on the field has been overturned. After further review, the call on the field stands. And depending on how you feel about that, you know, you go, <sighs> and we're all sitting there, and we're watching the Jumbotron, and, we're kind of, and we already know, we can say, yeah, he got it, he hit him, he just did, you know, and we kind of, did. but you wait on that. After further review, the play on the field is overturned. And some of you have you know, kind of been, you've been living this life and you're, and you're there and you're in the middle of things and you have begun to believe this about yourself and you've begun to believe this about your circumstances and you've begun to believe this about life itself. And I think there's a point where when Jesus comes back at this appearing that John talks about, this is a little corny, I know, but it's, it's as if God would say, upon further review... call is overturned and you're changed. You don't have to be who you thought you were. Because of your self-esteem and because of the junk and because of your abuse and because of the things that other people have said about you that after a while you begin to buy into. Because of the image that you saw in the mirror and you heard those whispers began to believe certain things about yourself. And God is saying, you want to dive deep? You want to know you're going deep? You're becoming the person that you long to be day by day, the person you were born to be. And that life, that hope is yours. You're born again through faith in Christ. I talked to a guy this week and he said, I, my whole life's changed. I mean, you can teach yourself to be good. You can buy the self-improvement books. You can go to the seminar. You can listen to the CDs. You can, you can do all of that. You can grit your teeth, you know, and you can think, I'm just going to hammer my way through this. You can say, I, you know what? I, I will teach a poodle to bark louder and hard. I, I will take on the look of a German shepherd. But the only way to do that, really, for a son of... Adam, for a daughter of Eve, to become a child of God is to be born again through God, through faith in Christ. And once that happens, then becoming a better person, becoming more like Christ, it's just simply a matter of spending time with Him as, as much as is possible and looking forward to the day of His return. That's it. That's, that's, that's what you got to do. When I was in seminary, um, I had taken a little Greek in college uh, and it was pretty tough, and you know, so I, I switched to Spanish, and, and, and that was good. That was great to get a couple of years of Spanish. Uh, when I got to seminary, I realized, you know, God, I really want this, and, and I, and I want to be able to translate and at least a little bit, and I want to be able to study this as, as well as I can. And there was one guy at the school where I went who was just famous for this. I mean, he preached that, and then all he carried with him was a Greek New Testament. I mean, he, he was just an amazing, just phenomenal guy. It was his whole life. 
So I enrolled in his class. His name was Dr. Dick Henderson. And I'll never forget him because he just this, this lovely man. He's just a, just, a, just, power, just a manly man. And just, you know, for seminary professors, most of them drove like four-door sedan, Oldsmobiles or something. He had this cool little sports car and this little jaunty hat. He was just this, this fast and interesting, a little eccentric kind of a guy. And I just loved him. And we all began his class. There were 42 of us. And, and, he, and on the very first day, he said, for those of you who will stay with me for the next three years, for those of you who will just show up for class and do the assignments, you will know when you finish your master's degree what I knew when I finished my doctorate, I promise. And he said, and you'll all have at least a B average. I'm sitting there thinking, okay. He made us this promise. So we began this journey. I didn't know how brutal it would be sometimes. I didn't know how much was involved. You know, three years later, there were 18 of us left in the class. But he kept his promise. He held this out, and he began every class with a devotional thought from the Greek New Testament. I'll never forget how motivating that was for me. And I would write my notes on this side of the page, and on the back of the page, I would write his devotional thoughts and these little nuggets of truth that he would throw out, you know, from the New Testament. And day after day, that fired me up. Day after day, it made me want to come to the class and, and do what he asked us to do. And there, there were times I went to him and even complained. I said, you want us to translate this? That's ridiculous. That's, we can't do this. You're not the only guy, and we've all got churches or jobs and families. And, and he would just look at us and say, I'm keeping my promise, and you just do this, and you're going to know this. And sure enough, everybody in that class, everyone who stayed with it, when we finished, we felt confident about our ability, the competency we had to handle the language. And we all got to be or higher. You see what happened? The promise of knowing how to dive deep inspired us. It purified us. Everybody showed up for class. Everybody did their homework. It, it, something happened. And in the end, he didn't just give us B's. We grew into those grades. We grew into that knowledge. Because we became what he told us that we would be. In the same way, Jesus promises, you'll stay with me. You just show up. You just do what I ask. And you will become the person. You will become the man. You will become the woman that you long to be in your heart of hearts. Because it's who you were born to be. And I promise you that's who you'll be. Would you stand for a moment? Let's just kind of pray through this moment uh, together as we wrap up this idea today. And I'm thinking that you may be at one of a couple of different places. You may be at a place where you say, you know what, I've, just, I've tried to be good, I've tried to be a better person, and I, I always walk away a little discontent, I always walk away a little frustrated, a little disappointed in myself. Uh, I make a couple of strides forward, and then I... Take a step back. I'm just trying to improve myself. Let me just change your whole concept of how that happens. If we stop trying harder and surrender, step into Christ and be born again. And if you're in Jesus and, you know, you think, well, Dan, I've kind of come to this place where I've started to lose hope and I've lost vision of that, 
I want you to know, I'm going to just hold out in front of you the return of Jesus. That's really going to happen. He's really going to appear. Uh, It's an actual literal event, and you will see him as he is. And when that happens, you will graduate. You will become like him. That's your hope. Whatever you're going through today, and I don't say that lightly, I know that there are illnesses and there are hurts and there are situations and there's financial disasters and and there's pressures that you feel at your job and school and, and it's easy for the world to grind away our hope. I hope you can today step back, dive deep, and he would refresh and renew your heart. You'd find your hope again. Father, we come to this moment and we, we thank you for it. And we really designed this service to, to lead us up to um, these places of affirmation so that we won't just hear a lecture and some really good music and walk back out into the world and, and not be changed. Would you continue in this transformation, this transition process? We've been born into your family today. Lord, we ask you to help us to become a little more like Jesus. Let this moment be one of those steps forward. We give you this time. Thank you for your grace. We're absolutely overwhelmed how you have lavished this extravagant love on us. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name.